Matthew chapter 4. And actually, uh, we will begin our reading just a couple of verses before that. We'll pick up the last few verses of Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And just remember what has just happened to Jesus uh, prior to Him being launched into what in most of our Bibles is called the temptation of Jesus, but maybe should even be called the testing of Jesus. He's being tested through the devil's temptations. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. May the God who made the world by speaking remake us as we hear His Word. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the lofty city, to the holy city, and set him on a pinnacle, on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to Him. Father, how desperately we need to be in Your presence. How desperately we need our feet washed after a dirty week in the world. And how excellent and perfect and sufficient is Your Word to do the work. 
Come and be with us. Speak to us. Lord, make me invisible. And Lord, let Your Word be everything to us in this hour. Lord, we pray that You would do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering how many middle school and high school students are finished with their finals for the year. Anyone finished with finals? One relieved student back here. Any still have finals ahead of them? Okay. This sermon is to encourage you. No. There's another one. Any college students done finals? Okay, anyone not done finals? So relief on many faces. Uh, most of us get some level of nerves when it comes to tests. And we get some level of nerves. Some people get paralyzing nerves. Other people are a little more nonchalant. But we all get some level of nerves when it comes to tests because tests expose us. Right? They either show that you know the material or you don't. When I was in high school, uh, I heard of a teacher who wrote a, you know, he was doing a test on Homer's The Odyssey and he wrote, where was the boat? And the student wrote, in the water. And the gracious teacher gave them half points for that ingenious answer. Tests, they expose us, what we know. They're also often prerequisite to being able to go on. If you don't pass your finals, you usually don't go to the next grade. And if you're held back a grade, then you're really limited in the opportunities that you can be pursuing. Not forever, but in the short term. And I have good news for all of you middle school students and high school students and college students. Once you're done school, testing doesn't stop. In fact, to do just about anything in life, you got to pass tests. If you want to work with refrigerants and do HVAC work, you got to be EPA certified. you got to pass the test. If you want to be a lawyer, you got to pass the bar. If you want to go to med school, you got to do well in the MCAT. There are tests really... Listen, there's no way Chick-fil-A is getting that level of consistency without people jumping through a few tests. There is somewhere a test where the right answer is, that's my pleasure. <laughs> Testing comes before meaningful working. Testing comes before meaningful ministry. In uh, John chapter, sorry, in Matthew chapter 3, I failed that test. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if, if you're in Matthew 3, maybe flip over one page and glance down to verse 17. And notice that Jesus' first sermon 
is a carbon copy of John's first sermon. John 4.17 From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Start at John 3. John is preaching. Matthew 3. John is preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Coming to the end of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's God's one message. Started through John and continued through Jesus. Between those two moments, when John preaches and when Jesus preaches, something extremely significant has happened. First thing that's happened that's extremely significant is that Jesus has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or, maybe to use more biblical language, the Spirit of God has come upon Him like a dove and rested on Him. He has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. I even had people reaching out to me this week, or one sister especially reaching out to me this week saying, I hadn't thought of Christ that much as, as a man. That he, he, Yes, He's the God-man, but as a man, He executed His ministry relying on another. Relying on the Holy Spirit. And we saw in Matthew chapter 4 that he went down into the waters of baptism and he came up and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and God said to him, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And, and that action, that, that movement of the Holy Spirit really is to dominate our thoughts through every verse from now on in Matthew. What's happening here? The God-man is working by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's to set our vision for what the Christian life is. It is not simply a life of rule following. It is we, people indwelt by the Son of God, carrying out our lives in the power of the Spirit of God. And really, in so many ways, so much of what Jesus was capable of, we are capable of, since we have the same Spirit that He had. Well, between this moment where John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, and when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, Jesus is given the Holy Spirit so He can take on that preaching ministry. But before He's sent out to the world, He's taken out into the wilderness for a test. Before He's sent out into the world, He's taken into the wilderness for a test. And um, this is a test, and I'm going to spend a fair bit of time here on background for a second. This is a test that a lot of people before him had taken. This, he wasn't the first person to write this test. This was a test that a lot of people before Jesus had taken and failed. Now, I'm going to describe to you this by, I'm going to describe this to you by giving you a fair bit of Old Testament example. Now, I did this a few weeks ago. It, it lovingly put you to sleep. I, I reproved the congregation and encouraged you to pay attention because you need to know the Bible better. I got home, my wife reproved me. She said, if you're boring, that's your fault. <laughs> Not theirs. Do a better job. 
So Lord God, help me to do a better... She said it much gentler than that, though that was the gist <laughs> of what was said. So I want to give you this Old Testament background. Here it goes. The people of Israel, this nation, the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people. And the most distinguishing thing that God did to this people, the, 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 the really the high point at the beginning of their history was that this people were a slave people. And God did to this enslaved people what every enslaved people ever has wished would happen to them. He literally came into their midst, in the midst of their slavery, and said to them, you're out of here. We're leaving. I'm going to do ten plagues to your enslaver Pharaoh. At the end of those ten plagues, you're out. You're gone. You're free. And you're going to head into a promised land to worship me. If you want to read the record of it, you read the early chapters of the book of Exodus, which is the book of Exit. You're going out. They're exiting the world of slavery and entering the world of following God and worshiping Him. And there's this amazing moment in Exodus chapter 15 where the waves of the Red Sea part, the people of God walk through, and then the waves of the Red Sea come back down on the major superpower of that day, Egypt. And the people of God sing the first song in the whole Bible. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. And they sing. And once they're done singing their hearts out, you know what they do? They complain. Oh, they complain. Oh, the verse was praise, but the chorus is complaining. That's what happened. Chapter 16, chapter 17, they get the water. This water's bitter. God does a miracle. The water becomes sweet. We don't have any food. I'll put bread on the ground in the morning and meat on your plate at night. Well, in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and it was so good there. God says of this people, God, unlike us, does not view complaining as a minor sin. He says in the Psalms, he says in the book of Hebrews, for 40 years I loathed that generation. I hated those complainers. And instead of taking those complainers out of Egypt and immediately into the promised land, he makes them wander around eating the same breakfast every morning. Now listen, I don't, if your breakfast falls from heaven, that's awesome, but by the 4,000th day. You've done, there's a great Keith Green song where he describes all the things you can do with manna. Boonana pudding, you name it. Like there's just all kinds of options. But it gets old. Anyway, they had this manna. They had the quail. God provided for them day after day. But essentially what He's doing there in the wilderness for 40 years, please mark that date, 40 years. For 40 years, he wanders them around in the wilderness. And here's what he does. He makes sure they wander along long enough so that every single one of them die. That whole complaining generation wiped out. That's why it takes so long. 
Now, here's the deal. Israel's brought out of Egypt into the promised land or on the edge of the promised land. They totally failed the test. And test language is used there. I don't have time to go read it up, but it, but it said they, they tested him by saying, is God really with us? I mean, parting seas, 10 plagues. Is he really here? Anyway, they complained. They tested God. And then because of their testing, he makes them wander around for 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years, we get the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Book of Deuteronomy comes to us at the end of the 40 years. They're just on the edge of finally getting to go in. The, the complaining generation's dead. Well, unfortunately, another generation that's going to complain is alive. But, but it almost sounds like good news. They're on the edge of going in. And in this very compressed space, Deuteronomy 6 through 8, God says three things to them. Tell me if these sound familiar to you. These three things are all said to a generation that's just watched all their forefathers die for complaining, that's on the edge of going into the promised land, and God says many things to them, but I'm going to highlight three. He says to this generation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Can you guess what the next thing he says to them is? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You picking up the pattern? Because the third thing he says to them in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, not Matthew 4, in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. As he says to them, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And so Israel went into the promised land and they sang Kumbaya forever and there just was glory. They learned that you don't just always trust bread, you trust God, you don't test God, you don't worship anybody but God, right? Now if you've read your Bible like ever or heard about someone who read their Bible once, you know that's not the case. They get into the promised land and they oppress and harm each other so they can all have more bread, more wine, more food, more sex, more carnal delights. They put God to the test. Prove yourself! Even though He's proven Himself a thousand times over. And they worship the Baal and they worship the Asherah and they worship the gods of the nations. This test that Jesus takes in 40 days in the wilderness is not a test that was only written for Him. It was a test that the people of Israel had been given repeatedly and had failed. And when Jesus is in the wilderness, He doesn't just come and say, hey, the devil's coming at me. I'm going to quote Scripture. It's way better than that. I'm going to tell you about a story I heard, not heard, saw. I was at a Bible conference years later, years ago. Can't be at a Bible conference years later. I was at a Bible conference years ago. And a preacher by the name of Bob Jennings, old small town preacher, really in the later years of his life, he would die just a few years later from cancer. Bob Jennings is in front of a congregation about this size. 
And he says, the great men of God in the Old Testament always knew and memorized and were devoted to the Word of God. And he says to the congregation, and I can't do this, I, I actually can't reproduce what he did. He said, name some men of God that were uh, deeply shaped by the Word. And people, David, Moses, you know, all these hands are going up and names are coming out. And for every name he was given, he didn't quote a verse about them. He quoted a verse about them that showed their love for the Word of God. So someone says Ezra, and he's quoting that verse. I don't even know the verse by heart. Where it says Ezra devoted himself to the study of God's Word. So he, his knowledge of the Word of God was not such that when you asked him, hey, did David love the Word of God? And he said, yeah, all Scripture is God-breathed. David loved the Word of God. No, he knew the verse where it said David loved the Word of God. And when you said Moses, he knew the verse where Moses loved the Word of God. And when you said Ezra, he knew the verse where Ezra loved the Word of God. And he had all of these on tap so he could stand without blushing in front of a congregation this size and any name that was named, he knew the verse that pointed out exactly how much they loved the Word of God. Now, preachers often make the point from this passage, when Jesus was facing the devil, he quoted Scripture. Amen? But he's way better than that. He limits his selection of Scripture to two chapters. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. And they are the two chapters where Israel has just been failing tests are now being sent into the promised land. And Jesus, after they've been in the, the wilderness for 40 years, goes 40 days in the wilderness. And all the verses he quotes are what God told Israel they needed to do. What's he saying? I'm the new Israel. I'm the son of God. Out of Egypt you will bring your son. I'm that son. Pharaoh, release my son that he may follow me. I'm that son. He's the son who is saturated with the Word of God so that he obeys in everything. The devil puts the smell of fresh bread in front of a man who hasn't eaten for 40 days knows. And he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil says, hop off that building and God will catch you. Yeah, God would catch me if I fell off a building, but I don't go falling off buildings on purpose. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil says, you came to get all the nations to worship you. I'll give them to you the easy way. Just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall not, you shall only worship the Lord your God. Beloved, we read last week that Jesus was filled by the Spirit to fulfill all righteousness. And did He ever. What a Savior. This man born of a virgin comes into the world and in humility is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And then He's anointed with the Holy Spirit so He will do what every person has never done, what every Israelite never did, what you have never done. Resist any and all temptations. So that at the end of the test, God says, you should start preaching. In fact, you shouldn't just preach. You should heal. 
You should cast out demons. And you should offer your body as a living sacrifice for my people to pay for their sins. Well, there's the background. There's the background. How'd we get there? How'd we get to this story? How did Jesus get into head-to-head conflict with the devil? The Spirit, of course. You see that? Then Jesus, this is chapter 4, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit to enjoy health and wealth. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to an extended time of peaceful meditation. Isn't this what we want the Spirit to do in our lives? We all have this idea that if the Spirit was leading us, I mean, if if we were really spiritual, then our life wouldn't be like a battle scene. That's a misconception. That's wrong. Your, Your life could be utterly embattled And it's not a mark that the Spirit's not working, but that He is. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. This word tempted is and can often be translated in the book of Matthew, tested. Then Jesus was led up into the Spirit, sorry, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I'll just leave that point there. But it's a very important one. Talking to Pastor Tom Scott recently, and one of the things he tells me often experiences in counseling is Christians who believe that God is working in their life once He takes all the struggles away. Rather than Christians who believe that God is eager to meet them with power and enablement in the struggles. If you confuse that, it doesn't matter how much Bible you know, you will hate your Christian life. Because you're like, if the Lord loved me, it would be easier. And then you take the evidence in, and what do you have to conclude? I must not be loved very much. Because it's always very hard. But if you have this idea that the Spirit leads into difficulty. The Spirit even can lead into head-to-head contact with the devil. If you live that view of the Christian life, then all the difficulties, well, they can actually become proofs of how much He loves you. He disciplines those He loves. He takes through difficulties those He loves. And it changes the way, what you're looking for from God. You're not just looking for release from these difficulties. Well, you are. But that's all to be set on the grace to be revealed to you on the last day. But in this day, you're looking for the enablement and the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit to help you through the attacks of the devil and the world and the flesh. Who is the devil? So this is kind of the third point. If you're taking notes, you're probably frustrated with me today. But here here we go. First of all, the historical background. 
Second of all, the Spirit's leadership. Third, the reality of the devil. Who's the devil? Who's the devil? The enemy of God. That's exactly right. In fact, his name is accuser or slanderer or adversary. And actually, just, just a brief comb through of this passage can teach us a great deal about who the devil is. He's, he's one who can tempt. So he's not just a, a, a force. He's an actual person who can think. Tempting requires knowing how to set the hook. If you're a fisherman, you know that you, you bait the hook so that it's attractive and deadly. That's what fishermen try to do. They're nice. They go, hey, fishy, fishy, fishy. If you bite into this, you'll be happy. And then they pierce their cheek and release them. That's nice of them. But anyway, so in order to do that, you have to be conscious. You have to be a person. You have to have a mind. The devil's not a force. Not some force floating around behind racism or some force floating behind oppression. He is a person who distinctly tempts and allures people towards wickedness. He makes what is good, he makes what is evil look good. He makes what is deadly look life-giving. And he sucks people in that way. Look, look at some of the features of the devil here. Uh, notice this. Did you notice what happened right after Jesus said his first, it is written? Yeah, the devil said, I'll try that one too. It's just brutal. You see that in verse 6? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And Jesus had quoted one verse. devil goes for two. If you've got the idea that something is biblical because it uses Bible, you're misguided. The most deceptive lies in the world come from men and women saturated with Bible. Make no mistake about it. The Galatian heresy that, that drew the believers away from justification by faith was not being led by men who said, abandon your Bible. It was being led by men who said, get more Bible from the law of Moses. The reason secularism in America is so deceptive is because it has found an amazing way to capitalize on Christian virtues like love, acceptance, compassion. Ryan, are you saying that love and acceptance and compassion are wrong? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that divorce them from the rest of the Scriptures and they are extremely deceptive. The most dangerous lies in the world come from people saturated in the Bible. It's why the Jehovah's Witnesses are so successful. They use so much Bible. It's why the Mormons are so successful. They use so much Bible. It's why the Catholics are so successful. They use so much Bible. Bible alone is no indicator of truth. You must know the whole counsel of God. But the devil will get you to isolate this verse. Isolate this theme. Isolate this idea rather than keeping the whole truth before our mind. 
I don't want to get too much into Jesus' reaction, but notice it here. The devil uses two verses from Psalm 91 which really do promise deliverance. They really do promise deliverance for the people of God. He will command the angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, man, God promises to deliver me. But Jesus knows enough Bible to say, yeah, but you're not supposed to put yourself in a place where you need to be delivered. Don't go to the bar, have a couple of drinks, and then pray for God to deliver you from drunkenness. That's dumb. Don't put yourself in the place where it would take a miracle for you to be able to stand. If you find yourself in a place where you would need to ask God for a miracle so you could sin, pray away. But don't put yourself in that place. The devil is personal. The devil is Scripture-saturated. The devil is ruthless. The devil is not like your non-Christian friend who has some pangs of conscience, some morals, some limits, some things they just wouldn't do. The devil has nothing he wouldn't do to kill you. The only thing restraining the devil is God. The devil on his own would slit your throat this minute if given half a chance. He has nothing internally holding himself back. Look at verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Where does the devil go? Right to the weakest spot. He's hungry. And not just hungry. I mean, come on, 40 days, 40 nights? That's really hungry. That's like desperation level hungry. That's like you're standing up and you're getting faint and you're having to sit down again hungry. Why don't you just turn a rock into some bread, Jesus? Just do that. The devil is absolutely ruthless. He's Scripture twisting. And I'll give you one more thing he is. He's, I'll give you a couple more. He's powerful. The devil's powerful. How powerful is he? Well, do you notice that Jesus seems to be enduring some kind of visions? In this passage, all, all of the Gospel writers are clear that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. He's in the wilderness 40 days. And yet, now He's on top of a temple being tempted to drop off. Now He's seeing all the world. None of this is possible apart from some sort of vision that the devil is giving to Jesus. And then to add to this idea of power, let me make sure I make this clear. When the devil offered Jesus the whole world, that was something the devil could do for a time. You're not blowing smoke. The Bible calls him the God of this world. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who at this season for a season has like squatters rights over God's universe. He, he is the one who is the Lord of the wicked over this world. We really are ultimately in God's world, but we are in a world that has been in many ways handed over. And the devil could have delivered it up to Jesus for a time, not for eternity but for a time. So we've got a devil who's personal, ruthless, Scripture-saturated, Scripture-twisting, powerful, persistent. It's not one temptation. It's three. And he's resistible. He is resistible. And not just by Jesus. James tells us if you flee the devil... 
If you, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. The devil is not someone you're just going to have to cave into. Temptation is not something you will inevitably fall into. God has, by the power of this Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit Jesus had, given us the strength to overcome the devil. Well, let's ask this question, and then we'll close. How did Jesus resist the devil? Now, what are the ways we tell people to resist the devil? You need an accountability partner, right? If you just had an accountability partner, it would all go away. Now, listen, I'm all for accountability partners. If you got one, don't quit. If you don't have one, maybe get one. But let's be honest here. If you can lie to God, you can lie to your accountability partner. And who had an accountability partner? Adam did. There she was, Eve. What'd they do? They decided to go in on it together. Reminds me of the illustration I heard years ago of like 21-year-old guys who make each other their accountability partners. Did you lost last week? Yeah, me too. Oh, some terrible consequences to that confession, wasn't there? I always tell young married men, men who are engaged, I say, make her dad your accountability partner. It's got an amazing effect on the soul. You did what to my daughter? Don't, don't do that again, like ever. There was no accountability for Jesus. He was in the, was in the wilderness. What else do we tell people who are succumbing to temptation? Get a good night's sleep. Yep, get a good night's sleep. We're more susceptible to temptation. You know, put yourself in the best possible situation you know, eat well. You don't want to be eating candy bars all the time. You're going to put yourself in a place where, where you're going to fall. Just try to control and regulate your environment, and you're going to put yourself in the best place possible to overcome sin. You know what? I actually agree with all that. That's a good idea. You can get a good night's sleep. Get a good night's sleep. If you can do some things that are restful, do some things that are restful. That's all good. Jesus didn't have any of them. He's in the wilderness. There's no easy chairs. Okay? There's no lemonade. He's in the wilderness. There's no accountability. There is no creature comforts. There's nothing to make this easier at all. He has one thing. The Word of God. It is by the Word of God that Jesus walked in holiness and it is by the Word of God alone. It was that at every single temptation, Jesus countered that temptation by the Word of God. Now, you might be tempted to read this story and say, the Spirit led Him into the wilderness and then you read the rest of the story and you go, where's the Spirit? Where's the Spirit? Spirit like leads Him into a hard place and then the Spirit's gone. And you would only be tempted to think that if you make the common error of our day, which is this. We do not recognize that the Holy Spirit of God is primarily invested in God's Word. That the Spirit is the author of Scripture, and the Scripture is the Spirit's Word. 
Now listen, I love all of the gifts that the Spirit gives. I love all of the graces the Spirit gives. They are wonderful, and yet nothing is more amazing than the Bible. How many people were rushing into Jesus' presence to encourage them with their spiritual gifts? Hey Jesus, that was a terrible temptation from the devil. Let me dodge and parry with the use of my spiritual gifts on your behalf. There's no one there. He has the Bible He's stored up in his word, in his heart, most likely from the ministry of his own eyeballs reading the scriptures, and from Joseph and Mary pouring them into his soul. And from that, he shows himself to be a capable swordsman. Value getting food when you want it, Jesus, not when God will give it to you. No, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, and that really is the point of testing here, if you're the Son of God, then, then do something to really show it. I mean, you can assure yourself, you can assure your others, jump off of this temple and God will deliver you. It'll be great for you. You'll go, I really am the Son of God. And everyone will look at you and say, he really is the Son of God. And Jesus says, but it would test God. It would test God. All the kingdoms of this world, they're yours. You can have them. Just bow down. What? One little, just a little bow. Just a little bow. What's a bow? Just bow to me. Give me everything you ever wanted. I give you what you came for. All the nations of the world. No, no. Actually, I want you to notice this. And then Jesus, how does he, how does he dodge and parry that temptation? He quotes, in fact, all three of these, he quotes a command of Scripture. You shall worship Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Let me ask you this. Do you think of the commands of Scripture as able to help you overcome sin? Listen, gospel-centeredness, that is making sure that our relationship with God is rooted and grounded, not in what we do, but what in Christ has done is brilliant and good and biblical. We should focus our attention on Christ who is above, uh, where He's seated at the right hand of God. We should be aware that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We should be aware that we stand in grace, that we are justified by Christ, that that is who we are. But if that all resulted, oh, the commands of Scripture will just make you legalistic, you are misunderstanding the Bible and you're probably falling into a lot more sin than you need to. Jesus is guarded each time. Turn the bread and turn the stones into bread. No, the Lord has commanded me not to. Jump off of this temple. No, I have been commanded not to test him. Worship me. No, I have been commanded only to worship God. So yes, if you come at the commands of Scripture and you make them like a ladder you need to climb to get to God, they will kill your soul. If you take the commands of Scripture and say, i got to obey all these perfectly and then I'll get to God, you will wreck your eternity. Not to mention your present. But if you understanding that God has sent His Son 
to pay the penalty for our sins. And now we are completely forgiven in Him and given His Spirit. If you then come to those commands and say, these words are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, you will be guarded from the temptations of the devil by them and by his. Oh, who authored these Scriptures? That ever-gracious Spirit. He helps us through these words. So much here. So much glory here. Let's review it, and then I'll sit down. First thing is, this test had been failed before, right? And not just by Israel. The Gentiles fail this test, right? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? The Gentiles are all about what food do you eat, what drink do you drink, what clothes do you wear. Sit down with some of your unbelieving friends and start a, start a conversation about what the best restaurants are in your town, what you like to drink, what you like to wear. You'll talk all night. Ask them if they like to talk about the Bible. It's like tripping on glass. It's very difficult. The world is consumed with food, drink, and clothes. The world is consumed with testing God. Right? Jews want a sign. Give me miracles, then I'll believe you. Greeks want wisdom. Prove it to my rationality. The world is willing to compromise little bits to get greater power. This is the classic Washington story. You just go to Washington to save the world, but you compromise to do it. All these temptations right here that we're dealing with are exactly what the world falls into. And the church is tempted by it. Make creature comforts your center. Make testing God the proof of whether He's real or not. Compromise a little to get more power. Have you ever met a man like Jesus? Have you ever seen a man like Jesus? You might be here checking out Christianity, and to check him out, you're probably checking out me, the preacher. You're checking out these, these Christians. That's great. Do that. I hope you find some wonderful people. I actually know you will, but you will not find anyone like this. Utterly devoted to God, not food or drink or sex or clothes. Believing God's Word instead of testing Him. Pursuing the worship of the world and the glory of the world by dying for the world not by worshiping the devil. There's nobody else like Him. And He's died on the cross to save sinners from their sins. Won't you believe in Him? Won't you repent of your sins and believe in Him? And then Christian, one last point. Isn't it amazing that the one who faces the devil, overcomes the devil by the Spirit's Word, the one who walks in perfect righteousness does it in a way that doesn't increase his self-righteousness over you, but his sympathy with you. I mean, come on. If I made it to the wilderness like this, I'd be unbearable for like the next five centuries. Yeah, and then he came at me and I had Bible here and Bible there, Bible everywhere. Should have seen me. Should have been like me. It was awesome. I'm awesome. Jesus does all of this 
And the author to the Hebrews comment is, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. But one who is tempted in every way like we are, and yet without sin. The soul formation this did in Jesus, if I can put it that way, is it made him go, man, that's what they're going through. And in fact, you say, well, he didn't really feel it. He was God. No, no. By resisting it, he felt it more than you've ever felt it. Right? I mean, if, if Chris Castro and I go weightlifting one day, it's actually happened. It's very embarrassing. But here, there's the case. When I'm done lifting my maximum weight, Chris grabs it and starts warming up. Okay? So if I grab, you know, 250 pounds and decide I'm going I'm to deadlift this thing, and then I, I, you know, I get it four inches off the ground and then drop it, and then I give you a little, man, I really felt that one. And then Chris grabs it and clean and jerks it. Who's feeling it more? The one under the most strain. The one resisting the weight the most is the one feeling it the most. Jesus' resistance of the devil's temptation doesn't make him understand temptation less than you, but more. And Jesus resisting temptation didn't make him self-righteously exalting over you. It made him sympathetic with you. So that he can be righteous for you, fulfilling all righteousness, and sympathetic with you as one who falls into the sins he has died to forgive. What a Savior. What an example. What a Son. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we praise you, and we glorify you, and we magnify you for displaying yourself to us in your word. We love you. Lord, change us just by looking at you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.